You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 27. This week, we continue our coverage of the Gallipoli campaign. The Navy had tried and failed to push through the Straits, and now it was time for the men to be put on the ground. British, Australian, New Zealander, and French troops would be landed in six areas around the Gallipoli Peninsula, with two of them being diversions. The Turkish troops had spent months preparing for the landings, and were ready to meet the attack with their own plans. This would end up being the largest amphibious landing that had ever been attempted in the face of armed opposition. Nothing like this had ever been attempted, and it would actually be quite some time before it would be attempted again all the way in the Second World War. The resources used for the landings were also huge. Here is G.J. Meyer giving a rundown of what was involved. Quote, 200 transport ships were accompanied by 18 battleships, a dozen cruisers, 29 destroyers, and 8 submarines. On those transports were 27,000 British soldiers, including the crack 29th Division, that, before leaving England, had been such a bone of contention. 30,000 Anzac troops from Australia and New Zealand, and 16,000 Frenchmen. The troops had been given high priority when it came to weapons and supplies, and their goal was to hit the beach and advance a few miles inland from each landing, at which point they would control the high ground, and the battle would be almost won. Each beach strategically supported each other, if they could advance. But when the first landings were made, each beach would be fighting its own battle. Today, we will cover the landings at Gaba Tepe by the Anzac, as well as the two diversionary landings by the French and the Royal Naval Division. You will have to wait until next episode to hear how the landings went at Cape Hales. The first troops of the entire landing that would be put ashore were the Anzac troops. They would end up having quite a hill to climb, quite literally. They were to make night landings on their beaches, 
and the first waves would have to quickly push inland to seize the high ground that overlooked the beach to give space and time for the succeeding waves to land. The 1,500 men of the first wave would be of the 3rd Brigade of the 1st Australian Division, and their immediate goal was to march inland and take the 3rd Ridge that stretched from Gaba Tepe to Battleship Hill. It was very important that they take the 3rd Ridge, because each ridge was higher than the next, so if they only took the first one or two ridges, they would still be in a compromising position. Their primary goal for the entire landing was to push far enough to capture the heights of Mount Tepe within the first day. If they could accomplish this, it would seriously hamper the ability of the Turkish defenders to reinforce the troops at Cape Hales and all around the peninsula. To accomplish this goal, they would be landed about a mile north of Gaba Tepe, over a span of about 1,500 yards, which would provide them relatively good access onto the ridges. The entire operation was planned, and estimations on speed of advance were made, based on the assumption that the resistance would be light, which would end up not being the case. Facing them were the men of the 2nd Battalion of the 27th Regiment of Turkish Troops, who were responsible for over five miles of coastal defenses, so they were spread pretty thin. The Anzac were scheduled to begin their landings at 4.30 on April 25th, when the men would be towed to the beach in lines of rowboats that were towed behind steam cutters. As they got closer to shore, the rowboats would be cut loose, and then rowed to shore by onboard Navy crewmen. They would be supported by several of the battleships, cruisers, and destroyers that had originally taken part in the attempts to force through the Dardanelles. These ships began to move toward the beaches at about 3 a.m., into their assigned positions for the landings. The troops also at this time began to move from their transport ships into smaller ships and then into their landing boats. At 3.30, the larger ships were in position and stopped while the tows continued to move in towards the beach. And this is where things started to go a little off the rails. These tows were commanded by junior naval officers, some still in their teens, and some of them started to get a bit confused. For anybody who has tried to navigate on the water in the darkness, you know it can be very disorientating, especially if you are trying to find specific points on a blacked-out coastline. Eyes start playing funny tricks where you end up convincing yourself that some terrain features that you can see are actually other terrain features. These kinds of problems were occurring, with the result that some of the toves at the far south of the line began to think that they were too far south, so they naturally turned to their north. They did this for the right reasons. If the men landed too close to Gaba Tepe, to their south, they would be under the fire of its strong Turkish garrison. To quote one of the commanders, midshipman John Metcalf, a boy in his teenage years, quote, I realized that we were heading very close to the north side of Gaba Tepe, which, because of its height, is very conspicuous. Knowing there were Turkish troops there, and we would get an enfilading fire all along the starboard side, as well as from ahead, I was confident that we must be heading for the wrong place. There was no one to consult, and I felt the lives of the men I was towing were my responsibility. Without delay, I altered course two points to port to get away from Gabatepe. After a quarter of an hour, finding that the toes to the port of me had conformed, 
I again altered course a point and a half to port. End quote. This caused the commanders of the other boats to move to the north as well, not wanting to bunch themselves up. All of this resulted in two very serious problems. The first of which was that the troops simply weren't landing where they thought they would, which would cause disorientation. But also, the land to the north of the planned landing zones was very different. In the area where they were going now, wasn't the reasonably flat landing areas and gentle hills towards the ridges. Instead, they would find steep cliffs and craggy hills that they would have to climb. At 4.30am, the men began going ashore. The Turkish defenders would be alerted by sentries right before the troops landed, and this was realistically about as late as the Australians could have hoped for, but there actually weren't too many casualties in the first wave, as they got to and across the beach and started moving into the hills. The Turkish commander decided to wait for the Australians to land before starting to fire, which cost him the great opportunity of shooting at troops that were all bunched together and on a predictable course. As the first wave got ashore, the toes turned around to collect the second wave, and every minute visibility got better and better for the defenders. The second wave would experience more fire on their way in, even though they arrived very quickly after the first wave. The first wave should have been able to push the defenders off of the hills overlooking the beach before the second wave arrived, but they had not been able to accomplish this. This was due to many things, not least of which was the stronger-than-expected defense and the disorientation of being in a different place. The second wave was able to land without too many casualties and would be reasonably organized and ready to move inland as soon as they hit the beach. So the Anzac had gotten on shore easily enough, or at least as easily as could have been expected even if they were in the wrong spot. And now their real work began. They had to move inland through a confusing series of terrain features that always meant the Turkish troops could be right on the other side of the hill. The Anzac troops did have numbers on their side, outnumbering the defenders by a reasonable margin. The Turkish commanders realized this very quickly after the landings, and began a series of withdrawals that allowed them to keep up essentially a moving ambush while the Australians moved forward into the unknown terrain. Even with the fitness of the Australians, Movement through the brush and over the hills was hard and sweaty work. They were having to constantly move up and down through gullies and over hills with their heavy packs and rifles. Corporal Thomas Louch of the 1st Australian Division had this to say about the experience. Quote, we slid down the sheer sandy slope of plugs on our backsides, still clutching our box of ammunition. We crossed the floor of Shrapnel Gully and with difficulty climbed the ridge where Major Denton directed us to a position on the forward side covering wire gully. We were soaking wet, very uncomfortable, and inflated by fire from our left. We could see no enemy, and did not seem to be doing any good where we were. End quote. As I mentioned earlier, the goal of the 1st Australian unit on the beach, the 3rd Brigade, was to advance as quickly as possible to the third ridge from the beach to cover the advance of the second brigade to its left. Instead, due to the difficulty of the advance and the opposition that they were experiencing, the commanders of the first units onto the second ridge began to slow down and dig in. Peter Hart would have this to say about the decision. Quote, 
The fact that the 3rd Brigade may have found themselves under pressure on the 3rd Ridge was irrelevant. It was their job to soak up that pressure as best as they could, and so allow the 2nd Brigade behind them freedom of action so that they would not get sucked haphazardly into battle. That way the 2nd Brigade could then move purposefully to seize control of Saribar, stretching from Chanuk Bear right up to Hill 971, and thereby establish a solid northern flank before the lunge towards Maltepe. As the 2nd Brigade began to land and advance, they were also sucked into the allure of the 2nd Ridge, and they dug in as well, instead of advancing further. This decision, made on the spot by commanders believing that taking and holding the 3rd Ridge to be impossible, would have repercussions for the entire campaign. It becomes an even greater pity with the fact that the Turkish reserves wouldn't have arrived in the area until about 8 a.m., long after the Australians would have arrived on the ridge. There were a few groups of Australians who had advanced onto the third ridge, only to be pushed back by the defenders. It is heartbreaking to realize that this would be the only time during the entire campaign that Australian feet would set foot on the ridge. For Lehmann von Sanders, this hesitation was a respite sent from the heavens. His entire plan revolved around lightly holding the beach while rushing reinforcements to the troubled areas. With the Anzacs stopping their progress, it was allowing him to move the 27th Regiment, which would be the first reinforcements on the scene. Lieutenant Colonel Mehmet Sefek would have it right when he guessed the intentions, or what the intentions should have been, of the Australian units. Quote, We guessed that the enemy was advancing slowly and cautiously, in order to capture the ridge where we were, which dominated all sides, namely Chernikber and Gabatepe. We set out about our task of throwing the enemy back, and we felt a moral force in ourselves for performing this task. All signs indicated that opposing our 2,000 armed men was a force at least four or five times that, or even bigger. We had to prevent the enemy from reaching and occupying the dominating line from Chernikber to Gabatepe and had to gain time until the 19th Division arrived." When all the men of the 27th Regiment had arrived, they began to press forward against the troops on the 2nd Ridge, while being covered by fire from the 3rd. The troops on the 2nd Ridge were under constant fire, as explained by Private Herbert Fields. Four of us lay under shrapnel, machine gun, and rifle fire, not daring to lift our heads the whole while, If we had budged, we would have been killed dozens of times over. The bullets were streaming so thick over our heads. As more troops arrived, the Australians did try to slowly push forward, only to be quickly stopped and then pushed back to their lines. As the Turkish defenses continued to strengthen throughout the day, it even became more difficult to get troops from the beaches to the fighting line. If soldiers were seen above ground, on the top of the hills or ridges, they instantly drew fire. This prompted many of the soldiers to commit to the slow up-and-down climb through the gullies to prevent being seen by the enemy. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. 
Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. It is at this point that Mustafa Kemal enters our story. Kemal was the commander of the 19th Division. He was 35 in 1915 and had been a member of the Young Turks when they took power. He received his orders to move towards the Anzac landings at 8 a.m. after quite a bit of indecision in the Turkish high command. This indecision really irritated Kemal, who had proved to be quite the man of action during the campaign. The first troops to arrive after the 27th Regiment were the 57th Regiment. As they arrived in the battle line in strength, they instantly moved forward to attack the Australian positions on and near Hill 700. This is when Kamal would give one of the most famous orders of the campaign, or at least this is how the story goes, and I will just quote Kamal's account. Quote, to my mind, there was a more important factor than this tactical situation. That was everybody hurled himself on the enemy to kill and to die. This was no ordinary attack. Everybody was eager to succeed or go forward with the determination to die. Here is the order which I gave verbally to the commanders. I don't order you to attack, I order you to die. In the time which passes until we die, other troops and commanders can take our places. End quote. This attack, and its ferocity, would catch the Australians, both those on the hill and their commanders, off guard. The troops defending the positions would put up a strong fight, but would be forced to begin giving ground as the Turkish attacks continued. Corporal Herbert Hitch would speak of the withdrawal from the positions. Quote, as soon as I jumped up, the air was alive with bullets, most of them going overhead. We ran back about 200 yards, but by the time we reached the top of the next ridge, all the rest were in motion. We opened fire, and we fired about six or seven rounds each, just to keep the enemy from coming on too quickly, and then we all ran back together for another 150 yards. End quote. The commanders of the Anzac were about as surprised as the, as the men on the scene. They had just stopped the attacks of the 27th Regiment, when suddenly there was another regiment crashing into their left flank. 
The only troops that could be sent to aid the Australian troops on the left were the New Zealanders, the first of which were coming ashore at 11 a.m. As they landed, they were immediately sent into the path of the 57th Regiment, that fortunately were beginning to slow their attack. As Lieutenant Spencer Westmacott moved forward to reinforce an Australian unit, he found himself in the middle of a scene of horrors. Quote, their firing line had almost ceased to exist. There was no trench. Lying on the forward slope without protective cover, every man there had been killed or wounded. They had fought on there, unsupported rather than retire, and I saw at once that the same fate awaited me and the few of my men who had got so far forward. We could not retire, of course, nor advance until we were reinforced. Nothing remained but to stay where we were and hope that something would happen to ease the pressure on us. What could happen, we weren't quite sure. End quote. The capture of the high ground on the left of the Anzac line was a very serious problem. From the high ground there, Turkish observers could accurately walk their artillery all along the line. The Australians did have some artillery with which to answer back, but they were having difficulties getting them into position due to the terrain. Even as more and more Anzac troops came ashore, it almost didn't help given the superiority of the Turkish positions. As the day was coming to an end, news of the situation was finding its way back to the Anzac commander, General Birdwood, who was aboard ships close to the landing. Birdwood would report to Hamilton that his men were ashore and engaged in serious fighting. He was concerned about the morale of his men under constant shellfire from the Turkish defenders, and was beginning to perhaps think about maybe pulling the troops out. At this point, Hamilton was still optimistic about the possibilities of the landings at Cape Hales. Even though they were having some troubles of their own, he believed that they would be able to push through. He would tell Birdwood to have his men dig in and hang on. Not really bad advice. I mean, it isn't that much different than many other orders that we have seen in the war so far but it ignored some of the geographical realities of the situation, namely that the fact that the troops were, currently, in horrible positions. As evening came on, both sides were completely exhausted. Both sides were equally scared that the other would launch night attacks, even though it turned out that neither side was even remotely capable of such an effort after a full day of constant fighting. The Turkish 77th Regiment was moving into place to help out the exhausted 27th, and the Anzac troops were just trying to get a nice consistent line created out of the chaos of the first day of fighting. Both sides were having problems getting their men into the right places in the dark, due to the terrain and the general confusion of new troops moving into unknown terrain. On the 26th, the British commanders would make a serious attempt to map out the lines. It's important to remember that while looking back at history, we can easily see that this unit was here, and this unit was here, and these units were on that hill, but the level of confusion in these types of situations could be huge. Commanders back on the beach, or even out on ships waiting to land, had partial knowledge at best of where their lines were. To try and solve this, the British would send out several officers to try and create a map of the lines. I'm just going to give this entire quote, and it's a long one, from Major Richard Casey, as quoted in Peter Hart's Gallipoli. Quote, a good deal of confusion existed as the position of our front line. General Bridges, therefore, 
sent Major Duncan Glassford to the left flank and myself to the right. We were to work towards the center and compile, in the shortest possible time, a joint sketch of the line of the forwardmost positions held by our side. The line at this time was, of course, very far from being a continuous one. It consisted of holes in the ground of every shape and size, sometimes roughly joined up, but frequently a cricket pitch or more apart. I aimed at making a pace and compass traverse, but the pacing consisted of my bolting as hard as I could lick between posts. As far as possible, I signaled ahead that I was coming, but in, in many instances I had to guess where the next post was, and frequently fell into it, to the great discomfiture and alarm of the occupant. The survey was indeed a rough one, but it provided a rough and ready solution of the mystery as to the position of the forward troops, and the reason for the confusion. It turned out that the line did not meet in the middle, but overlapped, obviously disconcerting. On the 26th, there were many reports of both sides attacking each other, and there seemed to be an equal number of reports of neither side launching any large-scale attacks. Regardless as if there were or weren't large-scale attacks, the line began to solidify, as more and more artillery on both sides began to have a greater effect. This was due to the Turkish artillery beginning to zero in on the lines, and from the Anzac side just being able to get more of it ashore and set up. The men in the trenches were on their last legs, after days of moving, fighting, and waiting for fighting. They were completely exhausted. The worst part for the Australians, as we have discussed, and will honestly continue to discuss for several episodes, found themselves very geographically challenged. They were in a bowl, and the Turkish troops held the rim of the bowl. 12,000 troops had been landed. They hadn't achieved their objectives and they were in for a very long summer. On the Asiatic side, on the beaches of Kumkale, the French were also landing on the morning of April the 25th. The attack began with a bombardment by a Russian cruiser on the Turkish positions overlooking the beaches. The landings were delayed a few hours due to confusion about where and when to land. This meant that the landings only really got started at about 10 a.m., much like on the Anzac beaches, the Turkish defenders here were just a screening force, deployed to slow down the French before the reserves of the 3rd and 11th Divisions could be committed to the fighting. The landings were under fire, but not seriously opposed like at Anzac. The French were trying to move inland two miles towards the village of Yeni Sher. The commander of the Turkish forces, General Weber Pasha, hoped that the screening force could hold the French at bay long enough for darkness to fall, so that the reserves could be moved up during the night. This is the one area where naval fire from the British and French could really have an effect, since the land was at a much lower elevation as the troops moved inland. As the French moved further away from the beaches, the resistance against them continued to grow. After the French advanced about halfway to Yenishur in the afternoon, the French commander was informed by aerial reconnaissance reports of several columns of Turkish soldiers moving towards his position. At this point, he decided to stop any further advances and to prepare for the defense against the coming attack. The attacks would begin around 8.30 in the evening and would continue all night and into the next morning. On the morning of the 26th, the French considered continuing their advance, when, early in the morning, some Turkish units began to surrender. 
This caught the French a bit off guard, uh, just like it caught me a bit off guard when I first read it. It wasn't like the French were in some kind of dominating position. Late on the morning of the 26th, Hamilton ordered the entire French force to go back on the ships so that they would be redeployed to Cape Helles, where the 29th Division's landings had stalled. Over the last half of the 26th, the French were loaded back on their ships. An army is at its weakest point while trying to withdraw from the enemy shore. So while the troops were being pulled off the beaches, the navy put up a strong bombardment to discourage any attack by the Turkish units. Overall, the French had about 800 casualties, which was several given the size of the force, but was offset a bit by the roughly 1,700 casualties experienced by the defenders. Most of the Royal Naval Division wouldn't go ashore on April 25th other than a contingent that would land at Helles. Their role in the landings would be strictly diversionary. They would undertake two operations, the primary of which was at the Gulf of Saros on the Bulair Isthmus. If you remember, this is the narrow strip of land that connected the Gallipoli Peninsula to the mainland. It was also the area that Le Mans von Sanders most feared an attack by the British, because a successful attack here would cut off all the Turkish troops on the peninsula the ships would begin to bombard the area shortly after dawn on the 25th, trying to hit any noticeable Turkish positions on and around the beach. The men of the Royal Naval Division were then loaded up on their transports that would carry them to the shore. The troops even went so far as to get out and into their sets of rowing boats that would be used to land troops on the other beaches. These actions had their intended result and distracted Sanders from the other landings, at least for a while. He would even go to the effort of visiting the area early on the 25th. The following story is one that I absolutely love, and it is what happened when the commanders of the diversion decided that they needed to take their diversion to the next level, and decided to land a few men of the Hood Battalion onto the shore with flares during the night, as if they were prepping for a night landing. This is a quote from Lieutenant Commander Bernard Freyberg, as quoted in Peter Hart's Gallipoli. Quote, I started swimming to cover the remaining distance, towing a waterproof canvas bag containing three oil flares and five calcium lights, a knife, a signaling light, and a revolver. After an hour and a quarter's hard swimming in bitterly cold water, I reached the shore and lighted my first flare, and again took to the water and swam toward the east, and landed about 300 yards away from my first flare, where I lighted my second and hid among some bushes to await developments. Nothing happened, so I crawled up a slope to where some trenches were located the morning before. I discovered they were only dummies, consisting of a pile of earth and about two feet high and about a hundred yards long, and looked to be quite newly made. I crawled in about 350 yards and listened some time, but I could discover nothing. Freyberg would then swim back out to sea to be picked up by the ships that would recover him and the other men who had participated in the adventure. The other diversion by the Royal Naval Division was the arrival of some transports and bombardment ships at Bessica Bay in the Dardanelles on the 26th. This distraction wasn't as elaborate as that at Boulair, but it does seem to have tied down some Turkish troops for about a day. The only landings left for us to cover are the primary landings of the 29th Division, on Cape Helles. We don't have time to cover them today, 
So next week, we will find out how the five landings went, and what exactly possessed the British to take a collier named the River Clyde and run it aground right on V-Beach. Thank you for listening to this episode of History of the Great War. You can find the podcast at twitter.com slash historygreatwar or at facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar. If you enjoyed the show, consider donating to keep the show going at historyofthegreatwar.com slash donate. Goodbye, Piccadilly.